welcome to the weekly sermon podcast at the Cowboy Church of Ellis County. Oh Lord, Lord of prayer, please. Lord God, we uh, come to you this morning in Jesus' name. Thanking you, Heavenly Father, for the gift of life. Thanking you for the uh, opportunity and the possibility of having salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, I pray that um, as we share together this morning our thoughts and our ideas about what salvation even actually is and, and what it requires of us will become more clear. I pray, Father God, that your spirit and your presence would move among us this morning. And I lift all this to you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have... Man, I've got a real ring going on up here, guys. This is not good. Um, I've got a hypothetical question for you this morning. If you have ever known someone, and probably you do who has accepted or made a profession of faith in Christ when maybe they were a kid or maybe whenever they were teenagers, whatever. And you think back in your mind, maybe this person's a family member. And you know that they went to a church service or revival or something other than they accepted Jesus way back when. But in all of the years since that happened, you have seen absolutely zero evidence in their life that they are a Christian. Do you think that person is really saved? I'm asking. Don't be afraid to answer. Don't some don't know. Some people say no. Do I get any yeses? Maybe some yeses, getting a few yeses. So our 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 answers are all over the board, and that really doesn't surprise me too much. Uh, The reason I asked this morning is because I have a really difficult time believing that someone can have that genuine encounter with Christ and and have the grace of God flow into their life and you watch them over a period not of a few years I'm not talking about someone that maybe you know gets out in the ditch for a little while and comes back I'm talking about someone that that supposedly made a profession of uh, of faith in Christ many, many years ago, and in the intervening time, there's just zero evidence that it ever happened. I have a hard time believing that the grace of God is operating in a life when you can see no evidence of the grace of God operating in their lives. And so this morning, I want us to talk about it a little bit, and I'm going to dust something off that I I haven't taken this out in a very long time. Uh, You may find it boring, you may find it informative, I don't know exactly how it will strike you this morning, but I I want to talk to you a a little bit this morning about salvation. Now, a while ago when I asked the question, is this person saved, this theoretical person who doesn't live like they're saved, and I got some yeses, I got some no's, I got some maybes, Uh, What that tells me is that there's many different ways of looking at it. And several years ago, sometimes it helps me to just simply sit down and almost almost draw a picture of something. Or or to draw out uh, an equation to kind of help me figure it out. And that's exactly what I did about this issue. And so if, if you got my slides ready back there, let's go. So, so here we're talking about a person that appears to get saved, right? It, it, from all intents and purposes, they, they came forward in a church service. Uh, maybe someone led them to Christ somewhere else. And, and yet they have fallen away for the rest of their life. Are they saved or not? Well, roll it over. That depends upon your theology. Because there are people who believe that you can be saved and lose your salvation. Let's roll it, please. So, so we're going to look at this a couple of different ways. Those of you who said that, that uh, you know, the person's probably not saved, you might be a believer in this, don't know. But there are people who believe you can lose your salvation. In other words, you can make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. It can be sincere, it can be honest, and you come to Him, but for some reason or another, you fall away. In this view, they would say, well, that person was genuinely saved, 
But they fell away, and now that they have turned away from Christ, what does that mean? It's easy. I've got the picture up there, guys. This isn't hard to figure out. What does it mean? Well, it means that they're now lost. Okay? And if they are lost, what does that imply? Biblically. Yeah, that they're going to hell. I mean, just, just being open biblical transparency, that's, that's what we believe, right? Now, there are also people, though, who believe that you can't lose your salvation. Sometimes this view is known as the once saved, always saved view. Probably many of us hold that. Now, they would look at this same person, same exact person, and they would say, well, it really did. I thought they got saved. It looked like they got saved. It appeared like they got saved. But since they fell away, since, you know, since they made that profession of faith on Sunday and they went to the bar on Monday and they never have left the bar since and it's been 40 years, I'm going to say even though they appeared to be saved, that actually they were never saved to begin with, that they are in fact still lost, which means they're probably going to hell. Now, when you lay these side by side, you see how very, very close they are. Even though the theology is, is, is different in some ways, in fact, where it ends up is not different. Because people that believe you can lose your salvation, that's called conditional security, by the way, in theological terms. They say, well, this person was saved. In fact, they really were. But then they turned away from the Lord, which means they're not saved anymore. And maybe someday they'll turn back to the Lord and they'll be saved again. And if they continue on in that, they'll be saved eternally. But if they turn away from the Lord, then they'll be lost again. And that's one of the weaknesses with this view. Salvation becomes something that you can just kind of step in and out of randomly throughout, throughout life. And, and yet you still come up with the same answer. And then if you believe in eternal security, you say, well, they just look like they were saved, but they really weren't. They, they, they fell away, which tells us that they really weren't. So they're lost and they're going to hell. All I'm trying to get you to see is that both of those views end up in very, very much the same place. Now, there is a difference, as I said, between those views, several differences, actually. One of which is if you believe in conditional security, if you believe that you can lose your salvation, that does put some pretty significant pressure on you. The, the, the strength of eternal security is that it looks and says, you know what, God is the one who saved me. I didn't save myself. God's the one who did it. He's the only one who could. I couldn't. And, and since he's the one who saved me, he's the one who's going to keep me saved. And I'm just going to have to put myself in his hands because there's not enough of me to take care of myself. And, and that's a strength. When you look at the other side, there is a little bit of a burden. If you believe that you can be saved today but lost tomorrow, then all of the time you have to be very, very careful about the things that you do in life. And so you find these individuals, they're not all this way, but you find these individuals that every time they slip up and they fall into a little sin they almost believe that they're not saved anymore and they can become very legalistic in their life trying to make sure that they're getting it just right because they don't want to lose their salvation so there really is a difference but all I'm saying to you is that if if you are a person that professed Christ and there's absolutely no evidence that that ever happened in your life over time when you get to the end of your life both of these views see you in exactly the same place there is no view of salvation that would suggest that you accept Christ, go merrily on your way, there's no evidence of it in your life, and then God's just going to sweep you up into heaven because you said a prayer. Every theological view of salvation that I'm aware of assumes that there is a real belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is a real commitment to live for Him, and that there is a real life change. Both positions of salvation, and these are the two primary ones, assume that a person whose faith is genuine will persevere in their faith throughout their life. The, the, the assumption is not that you're going to fall away. The assumption is that if you've really accepted Christ, it's going to stick, and you're going to live for Him throughout your life. That's not saying that you will never sin. 
But it is saying that you will never intentionally distance yourself from your Lord or deny Him or stop loving Him. It, it just means that you, you uh, do as we all do. Maybe you succumb to some kind of temptation. So either view says that when a person turns away from the Lord or they actively deny their faith, then it doesn't end well, right? Anytime a person starts on the journey of faith, seemingly, then turns from it and never comes back to it, then the thought is that it is not going to end well. And I would suggest to you this morning that we need to take this to heart because the probability... And the possibility is that it's going to happen to some of you. That some of you sitting here this morning, for some reason, at some point in life, are going to make that turn away from your faith, and you may not ever circle back and come back to it again. It happens all the time. And it happens for a number of reasons. One of the big things that takes place in people's life that, that causes this is that they made a false profession of faith. There are a lot of ways to come to Jesus without coming to Jesus. I hate to say it that way. But there are a lot of ways where you can do or believe that you're doing business with God and yet you're actually not. You're trying to, to make some kind of a bargain or you have a wrong understanding of what's happening to begin with. For example, there are some people who come to Christ. How many of you have heard the prosperity gospel? Wealth and prosperity gospel, okay? There's a lot of people all over the world that hear that. And basically, the prosperity gospel teaches that if you take care of God, God will take care of you. You give into the Lord's work, the Lord will give into your life. You do what the Lord expects of you, and you can bet that the Lord will do what you expect of Him. A lot of people buy into that. It's like a bargain. It says, you know what, I, I'm going to accept the Lord, and then I know that He's going to take care of me, and they start down that path. But then problems come, because they are doing everything that they know of to do their part in dealing with the Lord, and yet sometimes it seems like God is not there for them. I believe that that's happened to a, a long time family friend that we have going back for many many years this person as a young woman seemed like she had accepted Christ it seemed like she was very zealous for him she was always talking to people uh, about the Lord and her faith but life began to give her a series of hard knocks she had bad marriage after bad marriage she had a son who took his own life and all of these things were disappointing to her. And then to top it all off, in her later years, she married a man who was not a believer. He was, in fact, an atheist. But he turned out to be the best and nicest husband that she had ever had. And so she said, you know what? This stuff is all a bunch of hooey. I was serving the Lord. It didn't go right. I don't think there's anything to it. And she has openly turned away I mean it's not even a backsliding it's it's like no I'm done with it I don't want anything to do with it it happened because she 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 thought some kind of bargain I think was happening there are also those I think who turn away from the faith because they have had a wrong understanding of what faith is to begin with that they never understood that there are some some requirements on their part faith to them is like a magic formula that sets everything right with God. And once they say the magic words or they say the magic prayer, then poof presto, everything is good between them and God forever. No matter what they say, no matter what they do, nothing counts after that point. A couple of weeks ago, I showed a video from one of these reality TV shows. And you may remember... In the video, the young woman said, yes, I have had sex and Jesus still loves me. I can do whatever. I sin daily and Jesus still loves me. It's all washed. I've accepted Jesus so I can live like I want to. And since Jesus doesn't judge me, why should anyone else judge me? There is a complete disconnect between her life and her understanding, or, or at least, let me put it this way, between my understanding 
of God's character and His nature and what He desires a life to reflect. There's a complete disconnect, which tells me that probably she never had a good grasp. No one else judge me. There is a complete disconnect between her life and her understanding or a false profession of faith out of fear. Maybe as children, they hear one of these hellfire and brimstone sermons. We don't hear too much of those anymore. You've got to travel a long way to hear one of those. But it used to be fairly common. And, and kids would hear these things in churches, or they would hear them in, in youth camp somewhere. And, and basically, it would be, be portrayed, you know, God is good, and heaven is sweet, and hell is bad, and you don't want to go there. And the way you don't go there is by accepting Jesus as your Lord. And they say, well, I sure don't want to go there, so I'll accept Jesus as my Lord. But there's no conviction of sin. There's no comprehension of what happened on the cross. There's no real understanding of the gospel whatsoever. They're just simply being presented two choices and being told that if you will come up and say this little prayer or whatever, then heaven's for you instead of hell. And they're saying, okay, I'm all about that. But it's a false profession of faith because the, the work of the Spirit has not happened in their heart. Sometimes there are people who make a false profession of faith because, very frankly, they are doing their best to be good and decent people. And, and this used to be very, very common in small-town America. They're trying very hard to be good and decent people. Well, what do good and decent people do? Good and pe decent people go to church. Good and decent people believe in God. Good and peace, decent people accept Jesus. Well, I want to be a good and decent person, so I'm going to do those things because I am a good and decent person. But again, there's no conviction of sin. There's no understanding of the cross. There's no uh, work of the Spirit happening in their life. So it's a false profession of faith. I'm just trying to get you to see that there are many, many, many ways that people can start on a journey with Jesus that's not going to take them anywhere because it started off on the wrong foot to begin with. But I do think that there is another issue, and this is the one I want to spend time with this morning. I think there is another issue that takes a lot of people out of the faith over time. And that is that they do not take their faith seriously. And... The reason that they do not take their faith seriously is they just simply do not understand really what faith is and what they are up against. Let me see if I can expand on this. I want you to look at Luke chapter 14 verse 25. Luke chapter 14 verse This is not a passage that we look at a whole lot, but we probably should look at it a whole lot. Luke chapter 14, verse 25, it's, it's subtitled, if you are in the NLT, The Cost of Being a Disciple. I mean, even that subtitle tells you something different than a lot of people believe right on the surface of it. Jesus said, a large, or a large crowd was following Jesus, and he turned around and he said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must by comparison hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's that person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. I've seen this. Have you? Yeah, there's some foundations and red irons standing all across Texas if you drive around and look where someone got started and they never got finished. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. Even so, you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Salt is good for seasoning. But if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? 
Flavorless salt is neither good for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown away. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. So this passage is telling us that there's going to be a cost involved in following Jesus. That's something that we rarely, rarely talk about. He, he is telling you on the very front end that there could, by, by you accepting Christ, there could become stresses in your relationships with your friends or with your family. There could be times whenever you might have to actually make a choice between whether you're going to have the approval and the fellowship of your family or whether you're going to have the approval and the fellowship of the Lord because you may not be able to have both at the same time. Jesus is telling us that on the front page. That's the reason he said, in comparison with me, you've really got to put everything else down below. You've got to hate everything in, in, relative to me. He's not saying literally that we have to hate them or despise them. He just simply is letting us know that, that next to him, they're, they're going to have to be subordinated. So these kinds of things can happen whenever we come to believe in him. He also implies that, that we might suffer just as he suffered. He said, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to pick up your cross and follow me daily. Well, that's pretty interesting because we all know what he means when he says pick up your cross. I mean, the cross was laid upon his back. And he had to carry that just as far as he could. It was a part of, of the suffering that he had to go through for his obedience to God. And he said, if I suffered for my obedience to God, guess what? You're going to suffer for your obedience uh, to God as well. And so what he's telling us here is don't even begin the journey if you haven't counted the cost. Because there could be some cost in following the Lord. He's saying don't be a person that starts on this journey of faith and then doesn't finish the project. And this is exactly what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about those people who start with Jesus, but they don't finish with Jesus. And Jesus here warns us implicitly about that. Now, I would say this. If Jesus implies that it is possible for us to begin the faith journey and not finish it, then I would suggest to you that it's possible for us to begin the faith journey and not finish it. Right? If Jesus said it so, that has got to be a possibility. And it is a possibility that is alluded to throughout the New Testament. We're going to look at a couple of passages quickly this morning. The first one is um, way back towards the back. Go to Revelation. Then thumb your way back forward just a little bit, and you're going to come to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, I think, is where I'm going to start, yes. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. We're talking about starting the journey and not finishing the journey. Here's what Peter had to say about it. He says, and when people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and then getting tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they are worse off than before. He said, it would have been better had they never known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then reject the command they were given to live a holy life. They prove the truth of this proverb. A dog returns to its vomit. And a washed pig returns to its wallowing in the mud. Now that's graphic. You can certainly wash a pig. But it's still a pig. And it won't be very long because its nature has not changed. It's going to go right back to wallowing in the mud again. And Peter's saying, you know, for, for us as, as professors in Christ to clean ourselves up for a season and to begin walking with him and then just to go get right back in the mud, it is an illustration that in fact we, we are pigs in essence. Our character has not been changed or transformed by the Holy Spirit. We are still carnal, we are still worldly, we are still, I, I guess you might say, unsaved. I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4. Just keep moving towards the front of your Bible slowly. You'll come to the, to the book of Hebrews chapter 6. 
I don't know how to tell you how to do all this stuff on your phone. You'll have to figure it out yourself. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. Another passage we don't look at often because it makes us squirm. It says, for it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened. Those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit. Who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come. And who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. By rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing Him to the cross once again and holding Him up to public shame. When the ground soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer, it has God's blessings. But if a field bears thorns and thistles, it is useless. And the farmer will soon condemn that field and burn it. Man, I don't know how much clearer or more picturesque the language can be. Verse 9. Dear friends, even though we are talking this way, we don't really believe it applies to you. We are confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. Keep on. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for Him and how you have shown your love to Him by caring for other believers as you still do. Our great desire is that you will... Keep on loving others as long as life lasts. In order to make certain that what you hope for will come true, then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent or lazy, I would add. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance which is telling us that those who have a saving faith are those who have an enduring faith a faith that that they carry with them throughout life again I'm not talking about those who may make a detour for a season many many of us are going to experience that because of life trials and disappointments and temptations our fallen nature all of those things but he is talking here about people who, who start this journey actually loving and embracing the Lord or seeming to. And yet later in life, they just don't want to have anything to do with him. It seems to portray in this passage people who have genuinely responded to the gospel in some way. They have even experienced and been stirred by and touched by the Holy Spirit. That's what I get out of this passage. I think that we can say they have understood the gospel. They have experienced much of the Christian life, but later in life they have turned from God. Paul says this is not the nature of true salvation. True salvation is enduring faith. Let me put it this way. Very simple. True salvation has very little to do with how you start, and it has everything to do with how you end has very, very little to do with how it begins and everything to do with how it ends. The Bible teaches this again and again and again in the New Testament. I want to I go all the way to the book of Revelations just for a second and show you how this is, is, is uh, voiced even in the book of Revelation itself. And by the way, the book of Revelation is about the end. And, and it is about how people and churches wind up eternally. And so it's a, a pretty guide, good guide for how our life should be structured as we follow the Lord. I want to look. I'm not going to read through all of this. You can do this maybe in your connect groups this week, some of it. Uh, I want to look at Revelations chapter 2 in particular. I could go all the way through 3. And I'm not going to read all the letters, but I'm going to read the ending paragraphs. This is a series of letters to the various New Testament churches that existed in that day. And it's a word directly from the Lord. So let's start Revelations chapter 2. And um, oh, just to give you a little bit of context, I'll back up to verse 4. Here the Lord is expressing his uh, displeasure with the church in Ephesus. 
In Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, he says, But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But you do have this in your favor. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. But here's what I want you to see is verse 7. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches to everyone who is victorious. Note that word. In your Bible it may say to everyone who overcomes. There's different words it's used. Conquers is used in some versions. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Skip down now, if you will, to verse 11. Let's pick up the end of the letter to the church in Smyrna. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. Let's look at verse 17. The end of the letter to the church in Pergamum. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Let's look at verse 24. The church in Thyatira. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching, deeper truths as they call them, depths of Satan actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I received from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Do you see a pattern here? Again and again in the book of Revelation, it is talking about those who are victorious in their faith. Those who are conquering in their faith. Well, now, if you're fighting a war, if you're a soldier on the battlefield, or you're a leader on the battlefield, and you're fighting a, another army, it's not going to be easy, right? That's why they call them battles. But, but the battle's going to rage, and it's going to be hard, and, 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 and you're going to be sorely tested. But the only way that you're going to win the battle is what? You're going, to have to, you're going to have to stay with it. You're going to have to stay engaged. You're going to have to, to, to fight until the victory comes. That's the way you conquer. Fighting until the victory comes. That's what this is implying here. And so the Christian life is to be an overcoming life. It is to be a victorious life. It is not those who start well that will enter the kingdom of heaven. It is those who will end well. The Bible is very consistent about this. And the good news is, guys, that there is no reason for any of us not to finish well. I want you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. You're already very close. Again, it's close to Revelation. 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 3, love this passage of Scripture. This is really one of the first passages of Scripture as a young Christian that the Lord really spoke to my heart from. It's always stuck with me. Remember right where I was. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning verse 3. By His divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. Is that a super sentence or what? By His divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. I mean, there is no reason for us to not conquer. There's no reason for us to not overcome and be victorious because God has given us everything we need. We have all rece we've received all of this by coming to know Him, the one who called us to Himself by means of His marvelous glory and excellence. And because of His glory and excellence, He has given us great and precious promises. And these are the promises that enable you to share in His divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. In view of all of this, 
Make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. So, dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you really are among those that God has called and chosen. Do these things and you will never fall away, and God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Man, I love that first sentence. God gives us everything we need for living a godly life. He gives us everything we need to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this comes to us by knowing Him and what? His precious promises. It comes to us as we spiritually draw near to Him and connected and, and as we come to know the promises laid out in His Word. And He tells us here that through these things we are able to escape the corruption of the world... And we are able to partake in His divine nature. Everything that we need, God has provided for us. If that's true, why is it that so many people are not finishing well? If God says, I have provided everything you need for a godly life, why are so many people not finishing well? Why aren't a hundred percent of people who profess in Christ crossing the finish line if that's true? Have you ever watched Monk? It's an old show. It's a stupid show. I'm watching it again only because it's one of the few shows that's clean enough that I'm willing to watch anymore and it's on Netflix or whatever, so we're watching it. And uh, if you've never watched it, it's a, a show about a detective who's kind of lost his mind. He's off his nut. He, he is a germaphobe. He's um, OCD, obsessive compulsive about everything. Everything has to be set in a perfect order. He can't shake hands with anybody. Has to have a wipe to wipe off his hand if he touches anybody or anything that he considers is dirty. It, it's kind of a fruity show. But... It has a great theme song. I want you to listen to it. It's a jungle out there. Disorder and confusion everywhere. No one seems to care. Well, I do. Hey, who's in charge here? It's a jungle out there. There's poison in the very air we breathe. Do you know what's in the water that you drink? Well, I do, and it's amazing. People think I'm crazy because I worry all the time, but if you paid attention, you'd be worried too. You better pay attention or this world we love so much might just kill you. I could be wrong now, but I don't think so because it's a jungle out there. Apply that to Christian life, brothers and sisters. It is a jungle out there. And I think the reason that so many people fall is because on the front end of coming to Christ, they don't appreciate that. They don't understand that absolutely everything in this world is designed to separate us from our faith. The world is a toxic place for Christians to be in. Everything that is on the television, everything that is online, or the vast, vast majority of it, is absolutely designed to, to do a couple of things. One is, I think, to cause us to be desensitized to that which we ought to be sensitive to. And the other thing is, is to simply change our values and cause us to believe about things differently than we do. That's what it's there for. When we send our children to school and to college, many times they are taught only secular values, which means that any viewpoint that you want to bring to the table is welcome, except the viewpoint that comes from the position of faith. That is not welcome and cannot be brought to the table. Pornography. Available everywhere, all the time, 24 7 
365, most of your children, I hope that I'm wrong, most of your children probably have those little smart phones, those iPhones, those Android phones. I have one, probably you have one. That's the way of the world. I get that. It's hard to get a phone these days without all of that stuff. But it's a little porn factory right in their pocket. And mom and dad, if you think that your 12 or 13 or 14-year-old little son is not looking at that, you don't know little 12 or 13, 14-year-old little sons, because they are. Absolutely. It's there. It's a part of the environment in which we live in. We live in an environment also of constant noise everywhere, always, all the time. Have you noticed this? This has really changed in the last few decades. I guess technology makes it possible. I mean, there is typically noise when you're in the elevator. There is noise when you go out to eat. There's noise when you're outside pumping gas at the gas station. Lord help me. There's even a TV screen over the urinals at, at, at uh, Whataburger. You can't even go to the bathroom without noise. It's everywhere. And where does all, why is all of this noise there? It is there to distract us from ever having to meditate or reflect or even having the margin to meditate or reflect on the things of God. A multitude of activities in the world. One of the best books that I've read in quite a few years, I picked it up about 10 years ago whenever I had my burnout, it's called Margin. And the guy that wrote Margin said, this world is designed to deliver to you more and more, faster and faster, all the time. If you feel overwhelmed, it's because the world is designed to overwhelm you. Because when you're overwhelmed, when you're overworked, when you're overcommitted, where in the world does faith fit? It doesn't fit. And so truly, brothers and sisters, it is a jungle out there. Everything in this world is designed to separate you from your faith, and most people don't know that. And so whenever they come to Christ, they don't take the threat of the world seriously, and they hold their faith loosely, and Satan beats them like a drum. I think the single most overlooked truth in Christianity is just how difficult it's going to be to finish well. We are very good at telling people how to begin their faith journey. We're extremely good at telling people how to get saved, but we are extremely poor at telling them how hard it's going to be to hold on to their faith and to nurture it and to grow it. I want you to look at our passage in 2 Peter again. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, by His divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We've received all of this by coming to know Him, the One who called us to Himself by means of His marvelous glory and excellence. And because of His glory and excellence, He has given us these great and precious promises we've talked about already. These are the promises that enable you to share His divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. Verse 5. In view of all of this, when I stop, you start. In view of all of this, make every effort. Make every effort to respond to God's promises. He's telling us that this Christian walk is not going to be an easy or an automatic walk. He said there are certain things that we're going to need to cultivate in our Christian life if we're going to endure to the end. One of those is moral excellence. I'm going to run through these really quick. We're running out of time. Moral excellence. Some of your Bibles will say goodness. It's not enough, brothers and sisters, that we believe in Jesus Christ, but we should strive to be like Him. And the word goodness and morally, this, this is a good translation. Moral excellence is a good translation of goodness. We are to be morally excellent. Are you? Are you? Are you honest in all your business dealings? Are you honest in your conversations and your dialogues that you have with other people? Do you always try to do the right thing even whenever it's hard? 
There should be no such thing as an ethically challenged Christian, but there is. He said, listen, if we want to endure to the end, we need to cultivate this moral excellence in our life. Secondly, he says, we're going to need knowledge. I would ask you today, how much do you know about the Word of God? Really know. How much of your Bible are you really familiar with? It is a travesty to me that some of us walk with the Lord for 20 or 30 years and never have even one time read this book from cover to cover. Not even a single time. It is amazing to me how long we can be Christians and not even know the most elementary truths of our faith. There, there simply is no justification for it. And, and the Lord said, listen, we need to make every effort to be morally excellent. And to our moral excellence, we need to add knowledge of the Word of God because that's going to inform our moral excellence. Next, he said, we're going to need self-control. Oh my gosh, that takes a long time. <laughs> That's hard stuff to do. I'm a person that struggles sometimes with that self-control. Sometimes we get in situations where it gets hot really quick, right? Somebody says something or does something that just really twists us off. And it's very, very hard to not want to get down on their level and respond in like kind. And the next thing you know, we're, being, we're bringing shame upon ourselves or we're bringing shame Upon the Lord that we claim to belong to. He said not only do we need self-control. But we need to add to that patient endurance. We need to learn how to be tough. Man. One of the sorriest lessons I ever learned in my whole life. Struggle with it to this day. I think I learned it in fifth grade. I learned how easy it is to quit. And not only that it's easy, but it actually feels pretty good too. If you actually are in a situation that is hard and difficult, many times there's an alternative out there that actually is a lot easier. And so you can just jump out of the difficult situation and move to the easier situation. And I'm not lying to you, brothers and sisters, it feels pretty good a lot of times. It ain't bad. But it won't help you endure in your faith. Because I will tell you, it will be easier many times to not be a Christian than it is to be a Christian. And so he said, in addition to moral excellence and knowledge and self-control, we need to develop patient endurance, this toughness. And of course, he says, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, we need godliness, which is Christ-likeness and brotherly love. That simply means that we need to, to try and to strive to be like Jesus and to love like Jesus. And that's to be the goal that we strive at every single day. And it's hard work. Every bit of this, nothing easy that I'm saying here. It's hard work. That's the reason most people can't do it by themselves. And if you're trying to do it by yourself, probably you're going to fail. That's one of the big, big reasons we have connect groups in this church. Probably you're going to need somebody to vent to, to talk to, to get perspective from, to be prayed with. All of these things are needed because it can be such a difficult thing. But look at the promise that goes with all of this. Look at the promise down verse 10. So dear brothers and sisters, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 10. So dear brothers and sisters, work hard. To prove that you really are among those that God has called and chosen. Do these things and you will never fall away. But you will receive, and I love the language that it uses here. You will receive a grand entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's good cowboy language there. We have grand entries in rodeos, right? I mean, that, that's a picture. You can know that you'll be welcome into the kingdom of God if you work hard at your faith, if you take it seriously, if you understand that it is a lost, difficult, corrupt world out there and God gives you a way and expects you to work hard at getting uh, uh, away from the corruption of the world. We must work hard 
at living for the Lord every single day. That's all I'm saying to you. And the reason so many people fall away from their faith is that they think that's optional. But it's not optional. If you consider just how dangerous of a place the world is for your faith, you've got to know none of this is optional. Christianity is not about beginning well. It's about ending well. And that doesn't happen automatically. But the good news is that God has given us everything we need to finish well. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name. We praise you and thank you, Heavenly Father, for your faithfulness and your spirit that, that uh, convicts us, that shows us not only the failings in our life, but shows us the grace and mercy of the cross. We thank you, Lord God, for that moment whenever you opened our eyes and we received Jesus. But I pray this morning, Heavenly Father, for those who received Jesus but fail to see just what a threat the world is to their faith, to their heart, and to their walk with you. I pray, Father God, that you will enable them to see that they are walking on very thin ice. That they need to be striving daily to walk close to you. That they need to be walking with their brothers and sisters in Christ that can help them. That the way of faith is not an easy way, but it is a very hard way. And yet, Father God, it is a way that is filled with peace and it is filled with joy and it is a way that can bring us victory in every circumstance. And what I know, Heavenly Father, is that there are some who, like Paul said, have turned away from these things and they have shipwrecked their faith. Oh, Father God, let us not take the things of the world lightly. Let us not overestimate our own strength or how solid we may think we are in our beliefs and our values. But Lord God, let us submit ourselves to you on a daily basis that we might live for you, that we might endure, that we might have the full assurance of faith in our hearts. We lift it to you this morning in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Guys, thank you for being here this morning. If you need a sermon and many more, check out our website at www.cowboyfaith.org.